Amen. All right, kids age three pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, if you got a Bible, we're in Lamentations this morning. If you know where that is, congratulations. Uh, the rest of you, it's, uh, it's in the Old Testament. It's a, a third of the books under the prophets. you got Isaiah. It's about, about halfway through your Bible, a little bit to the right of halfway, and then Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. Uh, before I get into this, let me just say, I'm sure Jason mentioned a lot of this stuff before, but if, you're any, if, if Midtown is anything like East, then half of y'all weren't even in the room when, when he was doing the welcome. So um, we got two things coming up this week that I want to keep, keep you apprised of. Um, the first is, if you are new to Holy Cross and looking at, like, want to learn more and want to figure out how you can get involved and just kind of learn more about what we believe, why we do what we do, or maybe you're just like, hey, I'm already in, Rick. You don't have to give me the, the pitch. Uh, how, do I, how do I join up? Engage Holy Cross is our class that does that, and that starts next Sunday. Okay, so if, you, if, um, if you're not at our Discover party on Friday night, um, or maybe you just started coming, we don't even have your contact information, any of that stuff, just come talk to me after church, uh, after worship is done, and we'll make sure that you can get in on that, okay? The other thing I want to say is, if you are a small group leader, uh, ministry coordinator, officer candidate, or just someone who likes to learn stuff, uh, tonight is begins like a 12, I think it's 12 or 13 week class we call Foundations for Gospel Ministry. It's going on here in the evening, um, from 6.30 to 8.30, downstairs. Uh, if you want to come and be a part of that, again, come talk to me. If you were uh, planning on it, but you forgot it was happening, it's happening. So tonight is when we get started. All right, so most of you know, will know that we've been talking the last few weeks, and we'll be talking for another two after this, um, about some questions, some pretty weighty questions that... Um, Need to need, that we need to engage in. We need to engage in these because, frankly, uh, they are too uh, too uh, rarely engaged in, in the church. Which is not to say that people in the church aren't asking them. It's only to say that we don't ever speak to them, and that is a failure of uh, church leadership, guys like me, because we don't talk about it. Uh, these are questions that if you were to look at the rise of those, that group of people who now claim to have no religious affiliation, most of them have left not just theism in general or religion in general, but Christianity in particular. And most of that is because of these questions or questions like them that we're engaging in over the course of uh, six weeks. Today we come to the biggest of these. Like if you were to read books by the, the group that I don't think they coined themselves this because I don't, yeah, I, I want to think better of them than this. But the group that is now talked about is the New Atheism, um, Dawkins, Hitchens, um, that, that group of people. This is the biggest one. This is the one, guys. When we talk about disbelief in God, we can call it the problem of evil, problem of injustice, problem of suffering, whatever. It's basically this. The world's messed up. And how do, we, how do we square that with the idea of a good and powerful God, right? So that is the question we are bringing to the text this morning, um, as is our habit. If you'd stand in honor of God's word, it's either in your Bibles in Lamentations 3, or it's in your order of worship, or it's right there. In any case, please attend to it, because you need to know, especially this week, I am not making this up. This is important. Let's hear God's word. 
Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It's God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're coming into this room with lots of different stories. And even engaging in this question is going to bring out feelings, whether that's defensiveness, because some of us are are cheering, saying, yeah, this is, this is why I don't buy any of this. Others of us, uh, it's bringing out feelings of smugness because we think we have a, a quick answer to these things. A lot of us are somewhere in the middle, kind of vacillating between them. We need you to speak to us. Lord, where we can know, where, where we can't know, we ask for humility. Uh, where we can, we ask for faith. We pray that in all of this, it would be the work of Jesus for his life, his death, his resurrection that would come forward and not um, in any way simply the words of the one who speaks. Make yourself great this morning, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So I am a, I am a partaker of uh, sports talk radio and podcasts, uh, you can either cheer for that or think badly of me. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but there's a game that's often played on these things, and by game, I mean uh, just an, a creative excuse for the people to keep talking. It's called either, neither, or both. Right? Either, neither, or both. And it goes something like this. Start of football season, right? Either, neither, or both. The Redskins make the playoffs. The Cardinals make the playoffs. Right? And then they argue over which is going to be true. Or it would be like, um, either, neither, or both. Uh, Golden State wins the NBA championship again this year. LeBron James is league MVP. Either, neither, or both. And then you start arguing. I think, either, I think one will be true and the other won't. Both will be true or neither will be true. Right? That makes sense. This is actually the classical way of discussing God when it comes to the question of evil, right? Especially in the West. And as a matter of fact, I would say almost exclusively in the West. And I'll talk about that more in a second. Because when we talk about God in the West, we talk about words like good and powerful. And then we play either, neither, or both. Because looking at the fact that the world is broken, we go either God is good and not powerful, because if he was powerful, he would do something about it. Or he's powerful but not good, because if he were good, he wouldn't leave things the way they are. Or he's neither. Or maybe he just doesn't exist. Right? We, that's, that's the game we play. Now, I qualified this with the fact that this is the case in the West because, and some of you will know this because you've gone to third world areas, you've, you've gone and seen um, other places and other cultures besides this one. You will know that, that folks in those contexts don't seem to draw the same conclusions that we do when we come to seeing the brokenness of the world. And that alone should give us pause. 
I know that we're very kind of self-centered as a culture and think that ours is the only way of viewing the world, but when every other way of viewing the world never seems to make the same conclusions that we do off the same data, we should probably view ourselves with a little bit more suspicion that maybe those conclusions aren't the necessary ones. And, and so what, what I ultimately mean by that is that if you were to go to those areas, what you will often find in places of extraordinary suffering, extraordinary poverty, extraordinary pain. You will often find not extraordinary doubt. You find extraordinary faith. And, and that's why for Westerners going over into those contexts, we are so blown away. How is that even possible? Because for us, I have a hangnail. You know, like my toe is stubbed and all of a sudden God's goodness is radically called into question. Right? But I have a black and blue toe. Like, I, I'm exaggerating. But the point is the same. How is this possible? Well, as we think about that, there's one caution that I would want us to think through. Don't draw your conclusions about God from someone else's story. When we draw our conclusions, and, and the, the, the Dawkins, Hitchens crowd are famous for this. When we look at the world and we say, look at all the poverty, pain, and suffering. Therefore, God can't exist. And then you go into those contexts and they say, look at God's presence in my pain, poverty, and suffering. You are insulting a whole vast group of people. And saying, you are obviously too stupid to understand what your reality is. If you were smart like me, you would not believe in the God that you worship. Now, that is to say, you are free to use your pain, your story, and your suffering to draw whatever conclusions about God you want. But don't usurp other people's. Because you don't intend it to, but it's rather insulting to them. Okay? All right. Now, we'll keep that in mind as we continue in this. Okay? Because what we're going to do, because I think we are a little handicapped in the West at viewing this issue. We need to look at this issue through a different lens, through a, a, another culture's lens, and particularly through the Bible's lens, because I don't know if you know this, but it was written in a vastly different culture than ours. Uh, and, and it actually engages with this issue through the category of lament, thus the book Lamentations. And so we're going to engage in this text. We're going to do that in three ways. Okay? We're going to look at the problems of evil. Not the problem of evil, but it's problems. There are multiple ones. We're going to look at the Christian tension, and then we're going to navigate the tension, okay? They're an outline of your bulletin. If that's helpful, if not, leave it there. If you're note takers, great. If you're not, it's fine, okay? But, but maybe it'll help you remember. Let's start with the problems of evil and injustice. And I say problems because it is often assumed that the fact of the world's brokenness is only an issue with theism in general and Christianity in particular. But that's just not the, that's just not the case. Uh, that is not to say that it is not a problem. It is. But it's not just for Christians. Uh, but listen, to deny that there's an issue here is, is naive. And uh, Pat answers are not very helpful. Notice I didn't say Pat's answers. Pat's answers are normally very good. It's Pat answers that are bad. Um, uh, most of you will know this. Um, coming up on eight years ago, it's been eight years. Coming up on eight years ago, one of my children was diagnosed with cancer. And if you're a Christian in the room, you'll know what I mean. And if not, just, just tune this out for a second. Romans 8.28 was very true and not very helpful. Right? There's a, there's a difference often between true and helpful. And Pat answers for things. Like um, someone said, I've heard people say things like, um, 
Why do good things happen to good people? Or bad things happen to good people? And, and a Christian will say, well, there's no one good. No, not one. No one is righteous. Like, not helpful. Right? Not engaging in the question at hand. All right? Things like that. Instead, let's look at how this problem actually works. Here's the way it works. If you pick up and you read the Bible, some, uh, certain things just kind of come out to you. One of, one of which is that God is all powerful. He's the creator God. There's no other God but him. He's not in a cosmic battle with the forces of chaos. It's God. He runs all things and everything answers to him. Now, you may not agree with that. That's just what the Bible says, okay? You're free not to agree with it right now. He is, he is presented in the scriptures as omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, which means he, is, he can do anything, he knows everything, and he is everywhere, respectively. Okay? The scriptures are also clear on the fact that he is good. Right? Just the easiest example. Uh, in in the, the letter of 1 John at the end of the New Testament, it says that God is love. Right? We, we spent a whole sermon on that one uh, not too long ago. That God is love. That you can't get much better than that. And then, of course, not only is he good, not only is he powerful, but the scriptures also declare that there is evil, sin, brokenness, and injustice. And it declares all of those things in the same book. Right? They're all in here. And oftentimes, all in the same place in that book. It doesn't seem to find them as disparate as we do. It doesn't seem to have this issue with them that we do. It seems really incongruent to us. If God is good, wouldn't it follow that he would not want injustice, but instead would want everything to be just? Wouldn't it follow that he would want good things and not bad things and make that happen? But the problem is, story after story, not just in our experience, but in the Bible itself, we see something different. Injustice and evil happen. So then the problem goes, as I said, how can God be both good and powerful? Now, as I say that, that is all theoretical. But for some of us here this morning, that is not theory, right? That is reality. And we're trying to engage in how do I, how do I wrestle through this? How do I deal with this right now? That is life for me. And so, in light of this, some of us simply say that either God does not exist, or if he does, he is no God I would want to worship, because he's either good and weak, or strong and bad. Right? That's the problem. Okay? Now. Now, I should say, and if you're not a Christian here this morning, not everybody is, we're glad you're here, we want you to be here, okay? But if, not, if you're not a Christian, just tune this out for a second, or you can just listen in this in-house conversation, Okay? This is an issue for Christians no matter how sovereign you think God is. Okay? We are, we are a, a church in the Reformed tradition, which means that, uh, that we have a high view of God's sovereignty and his control over all things. And some folks want to argue against, and I, and I mean some folks, not just today, but like historically, want to argue God out of this by, saying, by screaming the word, free will! However, however, it doesn't erase the problem. You see, you either have to deal with why God would plan such things, or you have to deal with why he wouldn't plan it, because he'd never do that, but why he stands idly by and watches it happen when he could do something different. It doesn't fix the problem by screaming free will. 
This has been a problem throughout the church, throughout the history of the church. It's not going to be changed that easily with two little words. Okay, There's no easy out. So that's the problem on its Christian side. But there's a secular one as well. Did you realize that? Because it's not just simple enough to say, uh, because I see injustice, I can't believe in a just God, or I can't believe in God at all. Smarter people have said this, but it works kind of like this. If you take things like evil and goodness, justice and injustice, those are not is. Those are ought. Here's what I mean. I can look at this chair and go, this is a chair. That is an is, right? But if I were to say, this is a comfortable chair. First of all, all of y'all would disagree with me, right? That is not an is. That is a Value I have just assigned to this chair. This chair is comfortable, or it is uncomfortable, right? It is beautiful, or it's clearly not. Like that, those are value statements that we make, and values are assigned to actions or things by persons. They're not self-evident. In our culture, we believe this when we talk about truth, right? Something being true or not, that's a value, right? We, we believe that, which is why we talk about the fact that I've got my truth, you've got your truth, we're fine. When's the last time you ever heard someone say, well, my justice says this? Hmm. And that's interesting, because an action or a thing has to be given a value by something. Like C.S. Lewis said it this way, that you, you understand a crooked line by the fact that you know what a straight one is. Right? There is a standard by which you are judging it. And so, removing God because of injustice actually undercuts, it actually cuts your knees off of the issue of justice. There is no injustice if there is no ultimate person declaring what is and what is not just. All you have is my justice, your justice, right? And some of you are all thinking, like, Rick, how can you say that there's no such thing as justice? I'm not saying that. I very much believe in justice. Very much so. I'm just saying without God, you don't have injustice or justice. You have my justice. And you have no more way of appealing to anything beyond yourself other than you would if you said ketchup is best on hamburgers. I like ketchup, because really what you're saying is, I like this and not that. Listen to me. Let me give you an example. I believe racism, in its individual and systemic forms, is sin and evil. I believe that because the Bible says that all people, all of hum- all human race, all of humanity is created equal with dignity in the image of God. And the Bible calls those things evil and injustice. Without that, the only appeal is, I don't like racism. I think my preference is everyone should be treated the same. So then... If the biblical problem is, because of injustice, I can't believe in God, maybe the secular problem is, because I don't believe in God, I can't believe in injustice. If there is no God, how could there be justice? At least something more than, because I said so. 
right? So we're in an impasse, right? I don't think so. I, I mean, like, like I said earlier, these are conclusions that tend to only be drawn in the West. And by the West, I mean uh, Western European culture. Um, you know, Europe, America, Canada, like the kind of Western European mindset of things. We draw these conclusions. And so if that's the case, if, it's, if that's the case that we seem to be the ones who have such a hard time with this, and frankly, if I'm being straight honest with you, it's not even all the culture in the West. It's primarily culture in the West that is reflected white. Right? If you don't believe me, go on Twitter later and type in hashtag, look at God. And you tell me about people who are going through extreme difficulties that you and I would probably jump the faith ship for who, who are doing all right. Right? Won't he do it? That's, that's some good stuff. If that's the case, though, if, if this is primarily an, uh, the, a problem of uh, many of us in this room, um, not all of us, but many of us, then maybe we need to be open to the possibility that, that we need to push aside some cultural arrogance and see that maybe we're seeing things a little skewed. Might need to look at another place to draw the conclusions other than our own assumptions. And so to do that, I'd like to see how the Bible works this out. Because like I said, the Bible consistently talks about God being all-powerful um, and all-good, but brokenness in the world being there, right? Um, and so maybe we need to see how it works it out before we judge it. And the way the Bible works it out is through this category called lament. Lament. Thus the book Lamentations. All right? So let's look at this in this book. Uh, Lamentations. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, which would be like all of us. All right, Lamentations was written by this guy named Jeremiah. You'd love Jeremiah. Jeremiah, to call Jeremiah a reluctant prophet is a vast understatement. Jeremiah is a guy who got called into ministry and, and felt at multiple times during his ministry as if God sold him a false bill of sale. And at one point in his in his writings, he's, he's literally like complaining to God, you lied to me, you tricked me, and I'm doing this, because I thought things were going to go this way, and instead they've gone this way, and somebody punched me earlier today, and then they threw me out of the building. Like, that's Jeremiah. He did not go through rosy, uh, high diddly do neighbor type uh, Christianity, or faith. Instead, his faith was uh, full of difficulty and suffering. Uh, this is not Mr. Pius, the guy looking for the bright lining, refusing to be honest about reality. And, and he's writing this work after the fall of Jerusalem. And understanding that is very difficult. The impact that that would have had on people is difficult. Or at least I think it was difficult for most Americans before 9-11. But if you remember the questions you were asking after 9-11... If you were around, not everyone in this room was old enough to, for that to be a deal. But if you, were remember, if you remember the questions you were asking, can the world, what is, what, is there anything safe in the world? Like, you remember these questions? The buildings came down and all of a sudden, like, nothing is okay anymore. If you were, if you were a Jew in the 6th century BC, this is what, this, those are the kind of questions you'd be asking too. Because God's, God's city, Jerusalem, God's temple, where his special presence dwelt, the Babylonians walked on up on you and laid the wood to the whole thing. And it's gone. And you don't know how to deal with it. 
How could this possibly be? And not only do we have property destruction, but you have a situation in which Jeremiah has been witness to and been a part of insane amounts of suffering. Because in the ancient world, war wasn't done by marching up with your tanks and hoping the other side surrendered. You surrounded a city, you wait till they starved and were willing to open the gates because who wants to waste time storming gates? You just cut them off and you go, we can, out, we can outlast you. But of course, the ego of those inside isn't going to do it in a day. It takes a long time. And it's awful. And then you have the war that comes after that with the death and the pain and the abuse on multiple fronts. So Jeremiah has been privy to all this. And look what he says, how he's dealing with this. Look down at verse 19. He says, remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Now, what I need to do first is to remind us that Jeremiah is now calling God to remember something. He's not claiming God doesn't know, but what he wants to do is he's saying, this is what's important to me right now, and it's all wormwood and gall. Okay, Now that's metaphorical. Uh, wormwood is this metaphorical thing for something that tastes really, really bitter, and gall is bile. Okay, So you mix those up, throw that in your mouth. Mm. That's what he's talking about. This is what my experience of life is right now. It's awful. And God, I need you to remember these things. But then he continues. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Here's what he's saying. God, I need you to remember something because I can't forget it. I can't get away from it. And what this points to is that when evil and pain and injustice come into our life, what it does is it, it takes this thing and it moves it up in front of our eyes so that it eclipses everything else. There's nothing else we can see except what is right in front of us. And the important point of this is that Jeremiah isn't hiding the bad from the God he worships. And it doesn't seem to be keeping him, in fact, from believing in that God. Though, frankly, he's easily experienced. And and look, I am not meaning to minimize any of y'all's stories. He has easily experienced far more evil and pain and suffering than any of us have. How do you know that, Rick? Because he was in Jerusalem. When the walls fell. History tells us, not just the Bible, history tells us. Independent, independent uh, historians in the ancient world have said that the situation in Jerusalem was so bad before those walls fell. They were so hungry. People had turned on each other and they had to find something to eat. Fill in the blanks. And I can tell you this, it wasn't the big ones that got it. It was the little ones, according to history. This is the evil and the pain and the suffering that he saw. But it doesn't seem, he's honest about it, but it also doesn't seem to be keeping him from believing anything. Look how, he continues. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. In other words, this is, I have to, because of all of this other stuff, I have to actively do something, and that is where I will put my hope. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Okay, here it comes. Ready? Jeremiah says when suffering comes into our lives, that we have to actively call something else to mind. And that something is the steadfast love of the Lord. That word steadfast is 
uh, a special word in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and it speaks to God's covenant-keeping, promise-keeping love. Here's why that matters. Because the Bible is honest about the brokenness of the world. Very honest about it. It talks about the existence of evil. It doesn't apologize for it, nor does it seem to feel the need to explain it, much more than noticing the fact that things broke when we broke it. When we broke relationship with God, and we broke the world along with it. And that when that happened, we, we became guilty personally. We broke internally. Now we're bent towards independence from God instead of leaning into him in a, a dependent relationship. And we became alienated from God, meaning we chase after everything else to satisfy us except that thing which can, which is him. That when we broke, the world broke And that we were alienated from him. But that right there, God made a promise to make things right. And that promise is called a covenant. He made a covenant and said, I am going to fix things. I promise I will fix things and I will do it. So when Jeremiah says that he actively recalls God's steadfast love, what he means is, when all of this stuff is happening, I have to reframe it. Not ignore it, but reframe it with what I also know to be true. And I'm going to reframe it with the steadfast love of God. The fact that he has promised that he will make this right. So listen to me. When we experience suffering, when we see evil, when we're victims of injustice, we tend to think this is senseless. Right? That's what we do. How could this be anything but awful? When we do that, we are claiming and listen, I'm not, I'm not hating on you. I do the same thing. It's what we do because we struggle to try and find an answer for what's going on. I'll talk about that more in a second. But when we do that, we are claiming to have a God's eye view of everything so that we can make that judgment. And so when we then judge God or we deny him based on this, we are claiming that we can see all ends. We have all information and the ability to understand that everything is in fact Senseless, because it is senseless to me. Now, here's why lament is so powerful in the life of the Christian. It doesn't deny suffering. I know some of us have been in churches where we do that. We deny suffering and everything we deal with is happy and clappy and, uh, and amazing. But lament does not deny suffering. Instead, it allows us to take our faith or to, rather to lay our faith on a God bigger than us who has promised that he is making things right. Now, some of you are thinking right now because you're going through it and you're thinking, Rick, this doesn't really help. This doesn't really help me. I want to know why. Okay, but listen. If you think God is big enough to stop bad things from happening and that's why you're angry at him right now because he, he could have done something and he didn't. Isn't he also big enough to see things that you can't see? To have purposes that you can't quite grasp. Because, and listen, some of y'all are old enough to have plenty of experiences in this, and some of y'all are too young to. And if that's the case, I would encourage you to find someone with a little more gray in their hair and ask them this. But most of us who have been through it would tell you that the times in our life when we have seen the most growth have been those times that were the most difficult. And in those moments, we would have never seen it. Trust me. When I'm sleeping on the floor of a hospital, looking at my boy full of tubes, what I was not thinking was, praise the Lord, this will be for my good. 
what I was thinking was, God, save my son. Now I look back and I go, I'm not sure I'd give it up. I'm not sure I'd exchange it. So he reframes his suffering around God's promise to right things. But that promise to right things isn't just hope in the future. It's also trusting in what he's doing right now. But he also renews hope. So let's look at that. Look at the next few verses. He begins with this. The Lord is my portion. Here's why he says that. The Lord is my portion. Almost all of our suffering and pain comes with us losing something. Does it not? This is why in the Buddhist tradition, all of life is suffering. This is why they say this. All of life is suffering. Why? Because you can't hold on to anything. And that's why their answer is, you know what? You just need to not care about anything. If you're ever fooled into thinking, like, Buddhism and Christianity are about the same thing. No, 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 no. No, not even close. Christian answer is, like, is not, don't care about anything. Uh, that's awful. I don't want any of y'all to live like that. That would be terrible for you and impossible. He says, the Lord is my portion. Why? Because all of suffering is something being taken from us. Our health, our relationship, maybe even our dignity. But Jeremiah claims, he doesn't deny that that's true. What he claims is that the Lord is his portion. In other words, because of the steadfast love of the Lord, there is something in his life that can never be taken away. And in fact, is the most important thing to him. And it's the Lord. And then he says, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, saying wait quietly assumes suffering, right? Because if if everything's going right for y'all, you don't need to be reminded to just kind of sit and not make a lot of noise. Right? When things are going good for kids, they don't... Well, mine tend to scream. But not, most, most of your kids are good, and they don't do that, right? So they'll, they'll sit, but when things are going bad, when they're upset, when they have some semblance of pain, that's when they cry out. So here's what this means. When he says, the Lord is my portion, and he says it's good that you, one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, what he means is this. God has promised to fix things. He's true to his promise. He's given us himself and he will finish the job. Does this get God off the hook? No. But what it does is it tells us that the conclusions drawn from suffering and injustice are fundamentally not because of circumstances. They're because of relationship. If, you're, if you don't have a reconciled relationship with the Lord, if you don't view the Lord as your portion, then yes, all of these other things that can be taken from you have ultimate significance. And so, of course, you're going, God, I don't want God. I want my job. I want my wife. I want my kids. Like, I want, I want a good reputation. God. Talk to me about God. I want to not be in pain. Right? Whereas Jeremiah can say, those things are good things, but they're not God. And he can never be taken from me. You don't believe it. Here's what I mean. For the first, I don't know, and some of y'all moms will be like, no, it's actually longer than this. But listen to me. The first, like, five years of my life, every well visit my kids went to involved pain. Right? You take them to the doctors, and normally there's one or two, or like all at the same time, some kind of like injection going on. They always do this, right? And so, um, and, and frankly, like, 
in some practices, it's amazing. Like, they can coordinate it so it all happens. It, it's amazing. Anyway, the point is this. When they experienced that pain, what I watched my kids do is lean into me, lean into my wife, not get, try and get away from us. And they did that because they didn't doubt our heart for them. That moment of pain didn't somehow erase all of the other minutes and hours and days and weeks of care and love that they got. In some way, they were trusting that mom and dad knew more than they did, which we did. And that the very real pain, and it is painful, right? When you're a kid, that's, that's like the worst thing. Maybe dental work. Other than that, it's the worst thing. But that very real pain was there to keep them from some illness that, frankly, they probably would have died of without it. They couldn't see it at the time. They might not even be able to see it now. I don't know. But it was still true. Now, I know this doesn't clear up all the issues you might have, so let me try and navigate this tension first by talking about the suffering God. Because let's be honest. When we go through it, most of us get mad at God because we assume He does not have any frame of reference for what we're going through. Because God is all-powerful, He doesn't suffer, right? And we think that because if I were all-powerful, I wouldn't suffer. No one in their right mind chooses to suffer, right? (laughs) See, the problem with that is that is not how the Bible presents God. There was a, in, in, as Christianity spread into the Greek world, Greek thought began to imprint itself onto Christianity. And one of those ways in which it did that, and it is still prevalent today, is with the idea of a Greek version of divine, what's called impassibility. Impassibility means that God cannot be affected by anything. He is like Yoda. Like, things just happen, and he's like, hmm, Whatever. Like, that's what he does. That's God. And that's Greek. But it's not biblical. Okay? It's not biblical. Because what we have in the Bible is a God who became flesh in Jesus. That promise to make everything right, to reconcile us, to to fix the world we broke. God answered it not by distant fiat. He answered it by coming in the flesh, experiencing our suffering, and in the end, bearing it for us. Because we were stuck in our brokenness and guilt, God became flesh in Jesus to rescue us. He suffered in our place, which is why Jeremiah can can call God's love steadfast and say that God is my portion, right? He was looking toward when God would come and rescue him based not on his obedience because notice what he said. He didn't say, my faith never fails. My good obedience never fails because they do. It's the steadfast love of the Lord. My ability to to lament in both suffering and praise never fails. No. God's love, his steadfast love, it's based on his faithfulness. And if that's the case, if it's based on God's faithfulness and not Jeremiah's faithfulness, then because he didn't do anything to get it, he can't do anything to lose it. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, it also means, friends, that God understands your suffering. And we tend to look at that and go, there's no way. There's no way. 
But listen, let's say you lose a relationship, right? Maybe that's because of a death or a betrayal or, or something, right? So is God. And frankly, more so. The Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally one God, in relation, three persons in one God in relationship to each other. Loving relationship until God the Son on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Imagine that. We get upset when we lose something that we've had for 20 minutes. All of eternity. Enjoying one another. Delighting in one another until at one point, for love of us, God would turn his face away from the Son and pour, instead of his delight on him, pour the wrath that we deserved on him. And you think he doesn't know what it's like to lose someone? God is not distant from your suffering. He is not distant from evil. In fact, he bore it all. He chose to bear it all. He bore injustice. He bore shame. He bore pain. He bore scorn and insult and abandonment, even death. We get mad because we're like, God should keep me from these things. God didn't even keep him from these things. We think it's so abnormal. He goes, no, 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 no. This is, this is the way it works. So what do we do with it? I mean, because some of us are like, Rick, you haven't solved the problem. I know, right? Frankly, if I had solved the problem, I'd be on book signing tours and speaking tours. And probably not here, because no one has. Christianity does not avoid the reality of suffering, and yet it doesn't explain it away. It gives us lament. And lament is what we see here. Lament is acknowledging our pain. It is acknowledging our grief. It's acknowledging our confusion. I hurt, I'm sad, and I don't understand. But it acknowledges those, those things by, by taking them to God instead of using them as an excuse to run from God. See, in the Bible, people bring their pain and suffering to God because he is the only one who can do something about it. And this means, again, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian and every time someone talks about the problem of evil and you scream free will, can, can you just admit you're expecting, when you cry out to God to fix things, you're expecting him to violate somebody's free will. You just don't want to violate yours. Right? You just don't want to violate yours. We bring our stuff to God, acknowledging that we don't understand, but also trusting that he is still true no matter the circumstances. And that is why so many of the laments in the Bible, and there are countless numbers of them, go to the Psalms and just start reading. Anytime when you see the, the question, why, or how long, or something like that, you, it trigger in your mind, I'm reading a lament. Many of them end in praise. Uh, not all of them do. Psalm 88 does not. It ends in depression, not praise. It's like, You've taken all my friends from me. Darkness is my only friend. And you expect to hear Simon and Garfunkel start playing right after that, you know? But that's, that most of them do end in praise. And that is why. Now, let me say this for those of you who are experiencing suffering here this morning. None of this is meant to make light of what you are going through. Pain is pain. But the scriptures would direct us towards 
using that pain not as an excuse to turn from God, but to let it drive us to him. So you're like, I, I, but Rick, I, I just don't understand why is this happening. I don't, I don't know. But can I challenge you on something? Most of the time, I think we want to understand what's happening so we can have some semblance of control. Because if we can understand it, then we don't have to trust him. We trust our understanding. I don't have to trust him. I got this figured out. God's trying to teach me this, which is another way of saying, as soon as I can get my act together, he'll stop bad stuff from happening to me. Which, if that's the case, I'd encourage you to go back to the first sermon in this series. I think your vision of God's a little skewed, okay? At least it's not what the Bible tells us. Now, I think this is why this problem is fundamentally a Western problem at the end of the day, as we talk about all these things. Because you and I, most of us in this room, not all of us, but most of us in this room think two things. One, we think we should be able to keep awful things from happening. And that if awful things are happening, it's because we've done something wrong. Because we are powerful. We have conquered nature. And we think, too, God's sole purpose in existence has to be my individual happiness. Not really caring about yours, but he's got to be on mine. And because of that, this issue becomes stark for us. But if, instead of thinking that, what if we acknowledge the brokenness in us and around us, tell him how badly it hurts, even ask him why, but then actively seek to recall his steadfast love to us, and actively, I mean actively. Like, it's, it's something you have to work towards. I did it this week. It's hard. Because everything else is eclipsing it. But here's the thing. Let me conclude with this. This problem remains whether or not you have God in your paradigm or not. In fact, I think the problem becomes worse if you don't. Because then you don't really have any, any reason to get upset. You don't have any basis for saying this should be different. Should is, again, a value. In Jesus, though, what Christianity gives us is a God who has not only come near our suffering, but he's experienced it. He's redeemed it. Because of his resurrection, proved that it won't have the last word. And so maybe, just maybe, that truth alone makes it something worth reconsidering. Would you pray with me? Father, I know my friends here, and, and even some I don't know yet, that we're, we're going through it. Some of our suffering is worse than others, but we're going through it. And so a lot of the danger of what I've just said over the last way too long has been that it can sound like we're making light of it. Father, we need you. Because you have engaged in our suffering. And it is real. And you have been present in it. And you've called us to bring it to you. And when we can't do that on our own, to ask others around us to help us bring it to you. And maybe they can bring it to you for us. But God, in the midst of it, would you give us grace to see Jesus in the midst of it, our suffering servant who was born suffering that, frankly, he did not deserve, the ultimate victim of injustice, and yet did so so that we might not have to bear the judgment, the justice that was due for us. God, give us the grace to see that as a gift and then to move towards you in faith And when we can't, give us the grace to ask for help from others to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.